God, I pray that you would help me to speak clearly and also help me to speak true things about your Son uh, as you've revealed in your Word and about the salvation we have in Him. God, I pray that you would help all of us to treasure up these things in our hearts and not just know them in our heads. God, I, I thank you that you have sent your Son to save us so that we can be called sons of God. So we call on you as our Heavenly Father this morning and ask that you would do good to us by revealing more of yourself to us in this hour. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come this morning to our third and final week in this series on the Incarnation. And specifically, we're going to spend most of our time answering the question, why? Why the Incarnation? So if you look at a a nativity set and you ask the question, why? Why did the Son of God do this? Why was He born like this? Uh, We're going to show how uh, the Scriptures answer that question, at least in part. Um, Incarnation is what Christmas is all about. That word means enfleshment or becoming flesh, and refers to the time when God's only begotten Son, who is Himself truly God, became a man, uh, took on flesh and blood just like us. So when we consider the incarnation in the narrative of Scripture, which is what we often do at this time of year, when we consider the incarnation in the narrative of Scripture, we talk about a baby being born to the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem, who is God, who is a Savior, born for us, who is Christ the Lord. When we consider the incarnation in the theology of Scripture, we talk about how the Son of God took to His person a complete human nature, body and soul, for us and for our salvation. So last week we looked at how this doctrine was developed in the book of Hebrews, chapters 1 and 2, and we went to Hebrews because chapter 2 contains some of the most explicit statements in all of Scripture about the incarnation of the Son. I'll invite you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself, the Son of God, likewise partook of the same things. It's the incarnation. Verse 17, Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers... In every respect, fully a man. That's the incarnation. Verse 9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus. It's the incarnation. The Son of God partook of the same flesh and blood we share in. Was made like us in every respect. And so was made for a little while lower than the angels. And the first sight, of course, that the world got of this astounding reality was to see a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This was the Son of God become man. So last week, again, we considered first how Hebrews chapter 1 sets up these statements about the incarnation in chapter 2, right? Who was the one who took on flesh? Who was the subject of the incarnation? And we're told gloriously that this one was the creator of the world and everything in it. He was the radiance of God's glory, is, and is the possessor of God's nature. All of the perfections of God are his eternally. 
He is fully God. He is also the sustainer of the universe. He upholds everything that has been made, that He has made. He is the eternal Son of the Father. He's the one worshipped and served by angels. He is enthroned as true God, exercising God's rule over the universe. He is the everlasting, immutable, unchanging Lord. This is the one who has become incarnate. And after discussing the who of the incarnation, we studied the what of the incarnation. So we looked closely at those statements in chapter 2 I read earlier. That this Son of God, He partook of our same flesh and blood, was made like us in every respect, was made lower than the angels. And we took pains to say at the moment of the incarnation, the Son of God truly did begin existing as a man. But in such a way that He did not stop being God in any way. God the Son is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But though He did not cease being In living as God in any respect, He really did become like us in every respect and took to His person a complete human nature. He did not become a human with an asterisk by it, you know, where some footnote nullifies, well, I mean, I say He became a human, but, you know, we all know that we're not, we don't really mean that. No, we really mean that. He began existing as a man in every respect like us. So finally, we began last week looking at the why of the incarnation, the purpose or reasons for his taking on this flesh. Why did he become incarnate? We began answering that looking at just one statement in chapter 2. He became flesh to help us. And we read, truly, he did not take on the nature of angels in order to help angels who had fallen and sinned against God. He took on our nature to help us, to help men. So that's the purpose of the incarnation from Hebrews 2, stated very generally. The Son became like us to help us. And this morning I want to look back at chapter 2, where we find God teaching more specifically, and many more specifics about the reason for the incarnation, and fill in more so what, what this means, that He became like us to help us. Now, one clear purpose for the incarnation that runs throughout this section of Scripture is Christ's Suffering and death, God the Son became like us so that he could suffer and die. Verse 9 says, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that, so, so here's the why he became lower than the angels, So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Likewise, verse 14, if you look at that, it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that's the incarnation, that, here's why, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. So he took on flesh and blood ultimately, to accomplish something through death, to accomplish something through tasting death. And these verses show explicitly what we should know uh, intuitively, that prerequisite for dying was his taking on flesh and blood. Uh, Verse 10 speaks further of his suffering. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, God, 
in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. Verse 18, again, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, this is a mega theme in this section of Scripture. Suffering, death, suffering, death, suffering, death. What is the incarnation about? What is Christmas all about? Suffering and death. Why did the Son of God become like us? Because He wanted to suffer and die. And if the Son of God planned to suffer and die, He needed to become a man. And He did. He was born as a baby in Bethlehem because that was the only path that could lead to His own suffering and death. An incarnation is the only path to suffering and death for him because it is impossible, impossible for one who is eternal and unchanging to suffer and die. God cannot die. God cannot suffer. And because of the incarnation, though, we can be more precise and say God cannot die as God. But we have good news of salvation because God can suffer and die as a man. And he did, like us, for us. So so it is through suffering and dying as a man that Jesus became perfected as our Savior. And that's the next purpose of the incarnation I want to show you from Hebrews 2. Why the incarnation? It's for the Son to be perfected as our Savior. Maybe you heard that. Um, language when we read verse 10 earlier, but look at it again. Verse 10, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. Wait, Jesus was made perfect through suffering? Why did Jesus need to be made perfect? Wasn't he perfect to begin with all along for eternity? So how was he perfected? In what, in what sense did he become perfect that he wasn't before? Well, obviously, this isn't teaching that the son was made perfect in the sense of moral perfection. He did not need to be perfected morally. He did not need to move from a state of moral imperfection to moral perfection. He was perfect all along in that sense. And being righteous, holy, sinless. And even as a man, uh, he was tempted in every way as we are. And he was without sin. So this is not moral perfection that this verse is talking about. This is a vocational perfection. Vocation, job, office, calling. Uh, He was perfected vocationally in the sense of becoming qualified to carry out a certain vocation or becoming perfectly suited to accomplish a particular calling. And in this sense, right, in a vocational sense, the Son of God did need perfecting. The morally perfect Son of God was not a perfect Savior for mankind until... He himself became man like us and obeyed for us as a man like us. 
and suffered and died for us as a man like us. To be our savior and our helper, he had to become incarnate. He had to. Do you believe that? If he willed to help us in this way, that's what the passage says. Look at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. All right, if he had to become incarnate to accomplish these things, that implies that if he had not become incarnate, he could not have done them. He could not have helped and saved us like this, apart from the incarnation. This is the necessity of the incarnation. So before the incarnation, it could be said that he was not perfectly suited to save us. He needed to be made perfect in this vocational sense. And the incarnation was necessary then to qualify him for this calling. And then becoming a man, right? How does this verse say that that he became perfectly qualified to be our Savior? Verse 10, through suffering and death. Again, it was fitting that he, verse 10, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You know, a very similar teaching about the um, vocational perfecting of the Son as our Savior is found in chapter 5 of Hebrews. If you flip a couple of pages to the right, Hebrews 5, and I'll begin reading in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, that is, in his incarnate state as a man, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So so he became the source of eternal salvation for us. How, How did he become this source? The verse says it was as a result of being made perfect. Learning obedience as a man through what he suffered. Again, Don't mishear me, this this verse does not mean he ever moved from a state of disobedience to obedience. He was without sin, always, eternally, and and throughout the days of his flesh. But he learned obedience in the sense of growing in obedience as a man. Not growing in obedience in the sense that he ever disobeyed, but growing in obedience in the sense that he heaped up obedience after obedience after obedience after obedience after obedience after as he lived as a man. Uh, In the days of his flesh, he obeyed right through all manner of suffering. He obeyed in the face of being tempted in every way as we are. He lived a perfect life as a man. 
And then he died on a cross as a man for our sins. And then he rose from the dead as a man. And thus, he was made to be a perfect Savior for us. Perfectly qualified to save us. We could not have a man or a God who is more qualified to save us than the man Christ Jesus, who is the Son of God. And so I love this phrase in Hebrews 7.25. It says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. He was able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. The the verb to be made perfect here, it's used also in the Greek version of the Old Testament to talk about the consecration of priests. When someone is set aside and deemed to be qualified for that office to serve as a priest. Well, again, that, that's the sense in which Jesus was made perfect. He came to be a man and he was, he was consecrated, set apart. He was, he was deemed qualified now for the office of being our high priest, being our savior. Because he perfectly obeyed, died for our sins, rose from the dead, sits now at the right hand of God making intercession For all of his people, he's able to save to the uttermost all who come to him. He is a perfect savior for us because of the incarnation. Look again at verse 9. The next purpose of the incarnation we'll consider. This is the verse where we're told uh, that the son became lower than the angels. And he did this to taste death for us by the grace of God. Let's read verse 9 again. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that, made lower than the angels, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now we've said already that he became incarnate in order to die, but we're saying more than that now. We're taking one step past that. Uh, Now, we're not only saying that he tasted death, death like us, even more, he tasted death for us. This verse is not only saying he died as a man, this verse is teaching he died in our place as a man, as our substitute, tasting death for everyone. Death is a result of God's curse and God's judgment. And God's wrath upon mankind for their sin and rebellion against Him. It's part of the curse that came upon man in the Garden of Eden. After the sin of Adam and Eve, just like God warned them, sin will bring death and, and judgment. And so then the Son of God becomes lower than the angels and identifies us who, who have earned God's curse. So that He could personally experience that judgment of God against sinners, so that he could taste death. And that taste death doesn't mean, I don't know, like just a free sample or something, like he didn't actually fully die, he just dabbled in it or something. No, he tasted death. He fully experienced death. He really, really died. And that's why, you know, the early creeds of the church, they really emphasize this. He really died, okay? Uh, He died on the cross and he was buried, And he descended to the dead. Okay, He really died. 
He really died. He really died as a man. He took upon himself the judgment we should receive from God for our sins. It's for us. It's only good news for someone to die if they die in the place of someone else. This was a substitutionary death. And it's especially good news because as verse 9 indicates, he did this by the grace of God. Did you see that? By the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. So that means his substitutionary death can count for us even though we can do nothing to earn a personal share in it. It's, it's by the grace of God. A free gift from God. Jesus' death can count as ours. So we don't ever have to taste God's judgment against our sin. Not, not even a little bit. Not even in the... Uh, um, free sample sense of tasting. So for all who belong to Jesus through faith in Him, death no longer means judgment and curse, despite our deserving that. Death is now, rather for us, the doorway into a fuller experience of salvation and blessing because Jesus tasted death while lower than the angels by the grace of God for us all. This is what Jesus said that, uh, uh, to his disciples, about his disciples, uh, though you die, yet shall you live. And I love uh, Christmas hymns that, that pull on this thread. Uh, Hark the an- herald angel sings, says, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. And this is the good news of the manger. That the Son of God became like us so he could taste death for us and all as a gift of God's grace to us. The next verse in Hebrews 2 teaches that the Son was made perfect as the founder of our salvation through suffering in order to bring us to glory as sons of God. Let's read it again. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is amazing. So the Son of God became a human so that humans could be brought to glory as sons of God. This purpose of the incarnation, this is um, parenthetical, this purpose of the incarnation will take some explaining, okay? So, don't get nervous uh, when this point takes some time to develop, all right? It's worth it, so just hang with me. All right, to understand what this means, we need to back up to verse 5 of this chapter. What does it mean we're brought to glorious sons? Look, look back at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Okay, well, if not angels, then whom? God subjects the world to come to whom? Right, Jesus, of course. But the answer in context, I think perhaps somewhat surprisingly, is humans. Not just Jesus, but Jesus as a man and the people of Jesus with him. Uh, people. So, so, 
I think we demonstrate that because the author of Hebrews follows up on this line of thought in verse 5. Next, by quoting Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 celebrates how God subjected this world, this present world to mankind, to Adam and Eve in creation. Do you remember this? The Lord put everything in subjection under their feet as the image of God in creation. We, we read this in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, the fish and the sea over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Psalm 8, right, which the author of Hebrews is about to quote, reflects on this part of creation, this account from Genesis, and celebrates how God put all things in subjection in this world to uh, man, all things in subjection under his feet. And so he reasons, right? Therefore, the world to come is not put in subjection under the feet of angels, but under the feet of... All right, well, let's just read it. Look at verse 5 again. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you were mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Remember Genesis 1, all the earth, he said. At present, though, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. All right, let's stop there. So God put everything in subjection under man's feet in creation, but at present, and you probably could have told me this, we do not yet see everything in subjection under man on the earth. What happened? Genesis 3 happened. Sin happened. So God's judgment on man and the curse happened. You know this story, right? The devil disguised as a creeping thing that creeps on the earth, a servant, a serpent, whom Adam and Eve were called explicitly to exercise dominion over, tempts them to sin against God, and they do. And so humanity is plunged into sin and sin's consequences, the curse, and their dominion over the world is frustrated somewhat. Right? The world's going to fight back now when they try to grow things. It's going to grow thorns and thistles. And ultimately, mankind ends up, in a sense, subdued by the earth, Instead of subduing it, because man dies as a result of sin. So in death, man who was made from the dust to rule over the dirt returns to the dust and returns to the earth. So because of sin, man is opposed in the world and made subject to death instead of having the world in subjection to him. Adam and Eve are crowned in creation by God as the king and queen of the world, but they don't seem to be crowned with honor in the end because their end is death, not glory. 
And their lives are filled with suffering before that in the world. Right, look to verse 9 in Hebrews 2 now. So at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to mankind. But, verse 9, but we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Okay, so we see Jesus, this verse said, a little while lower than the angels, that is incarnate as a man, but he is crowned with glory and honor. And this says not, not just despite his suffering and death, this verse says he's crowned with glory because of the suffering of death. And that's because he has overcome it. He is resurrected from the dead. He is seated at God's right hand. So Jesus came as a man, paid sin's penalty of death, rose from the dead, and has thus been crowned with glory and honor as a man, as the God-man. And that is in accordance with God's plan for mankind from the beginning, from Genesis 1. So Jesus, incarnate, is crowned with glory and honor, all things in the world put under subjection under His feet, because He has personally tasted and conquered death. So so He's not made subject to anything in the earth, including death. He did not simply return to the dust as a man. He awoke from the dust in resurrection and in glory. And so we see Jesus crowned with honor, All the world made subject to him, and because his death counts for us, that's where we are headed to. All we who were saved by Jesus, whom Jesus has died for, for whom Jesus tasted death, we will be sons, raised in glory, crowned with honor. The world to come will be made subject to us. And this will be in accordance with God's plan for mankind from the Garden of Eden. To rule over his world as his image bearers. We reign with Christ in the world to come, right? So the Son through his life, death, and resurrection. As a purpose of the incarnation. He restores mankind to the fulfillment of the office God gave to mankind in creation. Or to put it another way, He brings us to glory as sons. We participate in Christ's reign. So why the incarnation? To restore every bit of glory and honor that man lost in the fall, in Genesis 3. And then some. On top of that, I think to raise us up to a kind of glory and honor that even Adam, before the fall, did not know. This teaches we're raised in resurrection to a position that's even above angels. We're brought to glory as sons, to glory with the Son, who is no longer lower than the angels, even in His humanity. He is still incarnate. He still has a human nature, but he was only for a little while lower than the angels. But now no longer, even as a man. If you look back at chapter 1 of Hebrews, in verse 3, in the middle of that verse, I'm I'm going to start reading. 
It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God on high. So, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God on high after making purifications for sins. So, this must be talking about him in his incarnate state, in his humanity. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. All right, this can't just be talking about his superiority to angels before the incarnation in his divine nature because it says he has become superior to angels. He has inherited a name more excellent than angels. He's come into possession of a more exalted name than angels. This must be talking about and is the exaltation of the Son of God as a man, as the God-man, right? Again, because he was never lower than the angels, as the Lord before the incarnation. And what is that more excellent name that signals a position of superiority even above angels? It, in context, it's the name Son. Look at verse 4 again. We'll keep reading. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten to you, begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. So God never addresses the angel as, as a son. To be called a, a son by God is to be given a place higher than the angels. And Jesus has in the incarnation the eternal son of God has now entered into a new exalted experience of sonship to God the Father as, as a man. He has inherited the name of God's Son even as a man. If you remember week one of our series, this is because he is installed as the promised King of God, the descendant of David. He is set up as, as one who comes from David's lineage, from David's body, on the throne of David. And all the world is put in subjection to him as the Davidic king, the king from David's family, a true man, a true descendant from David, whom God counts as his son. So, in week one, you saw how you can trace a, a straight line from David to Jesus. One who comes from David's family is going to rule forever. Everything's put in subjection under him. That's Jesus. But now, uh, you can put another dot in that line in creation. Okay? God's covenant with David to bring a man from David's family who will be given a rule over the world, that fulfills the office God gave to man in the garden. And therefore, with our union with Christ, when we share in his reign, when we share in that promise of the covenant to David, the Davidic throne, also we are restored to God's intention for man to be his image bearer on the earth. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? To which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son? None of them. But to us, we're called sons, 
brought to glory. Hebrews 2.10. Angels are not made to share in Christ's rule over all as the descendant of David. That's us. That's Christians. We will reign with Christ. It's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. To which of the angels has God ever put all things in subjection under his feet? We will be brought to glory as sons of God. We will share in the rule as the son of God in the world to come. And and then lower than the angels no longer. Do, Do you not know this? Do you not know that you are to judge angels? That's what Paul asked the Christians in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6.3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? So Christians will one day sit in judgment over angels. Don't ask me questions about what, what that looks like. I don't know. But, but I know that it is. Because the one whom angels worship became for a little while lower than the angels. The Son of God came down, was born in a manger as a man, and suffered and died so that we can be raised up with him and crowned in glory in resurrection from the dead as sons of God. So why the incarnation? To bring us to glory as sons. Sons with Christ and and because of Christ. Christ. And no wonder then the next verse in Hebrews talks about how he's not ashamed to call us brothers. The un- incarnate son unashamedly embraces us as brothers. He makes us joint heirs with him, inheriting the world to come. All right, the next purpose of the incarnation that I've listed on your handout is, is very explicitly offered in this chapter as the reason for Christ taking on flesh. It's to destroy the devil and the power of death. Look at verse 14, the great incarnation verse. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Christ took on our flesh and blood so he could die in our flesh and blood so that he could destroy the one who has the power of death over us. And who might that be? Well, in one sense, this verse says, the devil. All right, in what sense did or does the devil have the power of death? I mean, it's the Lord who kills and makes alive. Once again, I think the author's head is in the creation story here just like it was for the last point we looked at. Uh, Remember, death is a judgment of God against sin. And the devil had the power of death and that the devil was the one that tempted Adam and Eve to sin against God and, and attempted to deceive them about the divine judgment of death coming to them if they did sin. And they did. And so in the Garden of Eden, humanity followed Satan into rebellion against God. And in doing so, they followed Satan into deserving and receiving the wrath and judgment of God and death. It's as if in the garden, um, Satan said, you know, follow me, it won't end up in death. 
and, and he was a liar. Adam and Eve did, and they died. But then God the Son became a man. And as a man, he stood up to Satan's temptations. Do you remember this? In obedience, Satan tempted the man Jesus. But unlike Adam, Jesus obeyed. Satan tempted Adam and Eve with a fruit. Doesn't it look good to eat? In the wilderness, uh, the temptation account where Jesus is tempted by the devil also starts out with food. It says that uh, Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and he was, anyone finish the verse? Hungry, and he was hungry. That makes sense, doesn't it? And He was really a man. And the first temptation, then Satan comes and says, hey, turn these stones into bread. God is withholding good from you. But he obeyed perfectly, despite Satan's temptations, as a man. And he continued to be tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And then, of course, then because he was without sin, when he died, it certainly was not for any sin of his own. But it was to free us from the judgment of God that became ours through Satan's temptations. You know, Satan is also described as the accuser of the brethren in, in the Bible. It, it's as if you picture God on his judgment seat and, and the devil says, look how he's worthy of death. Look how she's worthy of death. Look how he's worthy of death. But if Satan seeks to accuse us now before the judgment seat of God and point, points out rightly that we're worthy of death and judgment, Jesus is our righteous advocate before the Father. Jesus has already paid all of the wages of our sin. And so the Son, becoming incarnate, has destroyed the devil. He's nullified the power of death that Satan's influence on us, that Satan's accusations of us had on us. We're released from that. We're, we're free from that tyranny. And this should be uh, news of comfort and joy to you. As we've been taught to sing, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Now, related to this point is the purpose for the incarnation offered in verse 15. Look there now. Why the incarnation? To deliver us from enslavement to the fear of death. I'm going to start reading in verse 14 again, just to keep the context in mind. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That, purpose of the incarnation, through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And, so another purpose of the incarnation here, that he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Amen. So Christmas means you don't have to live your life enslaved to the fear of death. The incarnation of the Son of God means you don't have to be afraid to die. 
because the Son of God became just like you and, and He died as one like you and, and for you. The real reason that we have to fear death is associated with the guilt of sin. Because we know we're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. We'll have to give an account for the way that we've lived. And we know we're guilty. And so it's right for guilty people to be afraid when they go to trial. But Jesus' death takes away all of our guilt before God. Not guilty. Declared righteous for all who have turned from their sin and trust in Him. is a free gift. So we need not fear it. Now, I love how the author of, author of Hebrews in this verse picks up the same verb he used just, just a few verses ago. It was the verb from verse 8, to make subject or to be in subjection to. So in creation, man had all things put in subjection to him. But then in the fall, man was made subject to lifelong slavery through the fear of death. I mean, it's not, it's not just that we were going to die in the end, but that the shadow of death hovered over us all before that. We're made subject. Right? We, we're not going to subdue the earth in glory. We're going to be subdued by the earth and return to dust. But Jesus has delivered us from this subjection, and He's redeemed us from this slavery. This is Exodus language. He redeemed us, delivered us from this slavery to the fear of death. Again, because he died, but he was raised. So as I said earlier, for those who belong to Christ, death no longer means judgment for us. Death means glory for us. And so we can approach death with hope and confidence and peace. And we can live free from the enslaving fear of death. And this freedom is ours only because... Only because the Son of God was conceived in the womb of Mary to deliver us from any need that we had to fear death. And if you are not in Christ, you are crazy not to fear death. If you're not in Christ. But, but Jesus tasted death by the grace of God for everyone, it says. So you're also crazy to continue not being in Christ. You can repent of your sin and trust in Christ and, and be delivered from this enslavement to the fear of death and from the guilt of sin. And you can be brought to glory as a son of God with Christ despite your rebellion. The next purpose of the incarnation is tied to the other great explanation of the incarnation in this chapter in verse 17. The great incarnation verse number 2. Verse 17, why did Christ become incarnate? To serve God. To serve God as a faithful and merciful high priest. Let's read verse 17 together now. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that, so again, here's per, very explicit purpose of the incarnation, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
So Christ came as our priest, offered a sacrifice of himself for our sins, and this was all in service to God. The Son of God became incarnate so that he could be the human high priest that God the Father wanted for his people. And to be this priest, to truly be a priest for us and represent us before God, he had to be one like us. And so here we see the purpose of the Son's becoming flesh was not just to save us, it was to please and honor and serve God His Father. It was God's will that the Son should make propitiation for our sins. The the Son became like us to save us as our priest because this was the way to serve God His Father. It's what God wanted. Hebrews 10 says this was the Father's will. Hebrews 10.5 and following says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, that's the incarnation, He, Christ, said in prayer to God, Sacrifices and offerings you, God, have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. It should make you think of the incarnation, shouldn't it? A body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added... Behold, I have come to do your will. So Christ does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, by his Father's will, in obedience to his Father's will, in service to what God wanted, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus came into the world to do the Father's will. What was that? He took on the body that the Father prepared for him and then offered his body as a truly acceptable sin offering in service to God. So when you think of the Word becoming flesh, of the Son becoming incarnate, you should offer much praise and thanksgiving to God the Father because the Son became like us and died for us in service to God. He was born in a manger and died on a cross because he wanted to carry out his Father's gracious will. And how wonderful is our Father in heaven that his will would be to look at his only begotten Son and say, I want for you to go be a merciful and faithful high priest for my people. I will for you to go make a sacrifice for the sins of my people so they can be made holy. This is my will, and and so I have prepared a body for you. And the son told his father, your will be done. So the son offers himself in our place as our high priest in service to God. And even now, after the cross, the son continues to be our merciful and faithful high priest And even now, he does this in service to God. The Son continues to please the Father and serve God 
as our great high priest who is our brother. Because he sits now at God's right hand, making intercession for God's people. So why the incarnation? Because the Son loves the Father and desires to do His will. Let's look at verse 17 again, the last part of the verse. Here's an additional reason for the incarnation. It's related to the other ones we've considered, but worth, worth considering all by itself. To make propitiation for our sins. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. The last part of the verse says, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, propitiation is a big word that means turning aside wrath or appeasing wrath. So, when the Son offered himself and the body the Father prepared for him for our sins, he turned aside God's just wrath, and he satisfied God's holy anger against us for our sins, uh, to the end that God's disposition towards us is now propitious, with a word that means favorable. This is propitiation, propitiation. And so, wow, is this good news or what? God looks upon all people who are united to Christ by faith not in wrath, not in consideration of their sin, but instead now He looks upon us in favor, in consideration of Christ's obedient work. He doesn't count our sins against us because He counted them against Christ. Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree, and He suffered God's wrath against sinners in our place. He, he drank the cup of God's wrath down to the bottom and died and was buried. And he descended to the dead. And then he got up from the dead. And that shows that he had fully, completely, 100% satisfied all of the wrath of God against the sins of all of his people. He has made a true propitiation for the sins of the people. And Jesus could not have taken God's wrath for us if He had not been made like us, born of Mary. No incarnation, no propitiation. God's wrath was poured out against our true substitute, the incarnate Son of God. And so God can uphold His justice and uphold His good, right wrath and, and offer us free forgiveness and eternal life on the basis of the propitiating sacrifice of the Son. Another purpose for the incarnation is found in verse 18. Why the incarnation? To help us when we are tempted. Verse 18 says, because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. So He is able... You, you should, if you underline in your Bible, you might want to underline, He is able. He is able to help those who are being tempted. How? Because He Himself has suffered. How is He able to suffer and be tempted? Only because He partook of our same flesh and 
blood. In Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we confidently should draw near to the throne of grace to find help in time of need, in trial and in temptation. Why? Well, because we believe the one who sits on the throne of grace is like us, is a man, is God incarnate. And so he's been suffered. He has suffered like us. He's been in trial like us. He's been tempted like us. And so he can give help. He can give mercy. He will give grace. So you go confidently to Jesus. He's able to help you in ways that wouldn't be possible if he had not been born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, but he was. And so we see here, right, he's a perfect savior, not just for when we die and after, but even now, even now, because of the incarnation, he is a perfect savior for us. Finally, the one other purpose I want to consider from Hebrews 2, one final time this morning we'll ask, why Did Jesus become incarnate? To be crowned with glory and honor. So we saw earlier how the Son became incarnate because He wanted to serve His Father. But now we see that the Father wanted the Son to become incarnate because He wanted to exalt His Son. Verse 9, we see Him a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So the father desired his son to become incarnate so that his son could suffer and die so that the father could crown his son with glory and honor before a watching universe. The father wanted his son to be born like us because the incarnation was the path to the cross and the cross was the path to the resurrection and the resurrection was the path to the son being exalted above all things In the universe, the Father sent His Son to a humble human birth, ultimately in order to exalt Him as the head over all things. The Father sent His Son to be born in a manger so that His Son could be, in the end, made preeminent in all things. So the Father could exalt Him above every name. That at the name of Jesus, which is the name he was given as a man when he was born as a man by by Joseph and Mary. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and, and under the earth. So, why did Jesus become incarnate? Why Christmas? Why was he born as a baby? So he could suffer and die and become our perfect savior to taste death for us by the grace of God to bring us to glory as sons, to destroy the devil and the power of death, to deliver us from enslavement to the fear of death, to serve God as our merciful and faithful high priest, to make propitiation for our sins, to be able to help us when we are tempted, and to be personally crowned with glory and honored above all by His Father as the head of all of things in heaven and things on earth, that all things would be united under him as, as the head. Let's close in prayer. 
God, this is too much. It's too much for us to take in. We, we cannot even fully appreciate even one of these purposes of the incarnation, but to consider them all, everything you accomplished by sending your son to become a man, it is glorious, overwhelmingly glorious. God, you are great. Your plan to send your son in the fullness of time is great. And so we give glory to you, Father, and we give glory to you, Son, who came. Thank you for the kindness of your will toward us, the graciousness of your will. And we thank you for your will to exalt your Son and bring glory to him. We say that is good and that is right, and we want to give glory to him. We look forward to giving glory to him imperfectly with the rest of this life, but also uh, for eternity, worshiping the lamb who was slain. God, I pray um, that you would, again, help us to think true things about you and about the purpose of the incarnation. God, I pray that you would protect us from error or even from overemphasis kind of error, and I pray that you would help us to think rightly about the incarnation so that we could worship you in spirit and in truth, which is what you want and what you deserve. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.